IX Mike Corbett here, the national official for NASGWT in Scotland. And I'm introducing to you our Better Deal for Teachers podcast. Uh, it's going to be a series of podcasts which explore a variety of issues across education in Scotland. Uh, and most importantly, talk to some of the key people about education in Scotland. And that will include from time to time some real live teachers. This week in our Better Deal for Teachers in Scotland podcast, we are going to be talking to Tom Bennett, Behaviour Management Specialist, about one of the key issues that is exercising teachers in Scotland at the moment. Welcome along, Tom. Uh, I'm sure our listeners would be interested, first of all, in your experience as a teacher especially your experience in some of London's inner city schools. I taught in nothing but kind of challenging inner city schools for about 14 years, which I loved, <laughs> he says, having left it. I loved it a great deal. Um, but I remember when I started to teach, and I think this is quite common with many other people's experiences, that I, I had basically no training whatsoever on how to manage behaviour. Mm -hmm. And the idea was you would just go and stand in front of them and, and, and you know, and somehow magically impart knowledge and skills. Um, and I think that that spoke to the enormous deficit within teacher training, which was certainly current at the time in the UK. And I went to one of the best institutions to learn to be a teacher. And I, and I, and I, and I came out of it less capable than I was before I went in because my head was confused by lots of daft facts. Um, and you kind of ended up learning on the job, which is the worst way to learn, you know, and I, and I, and I realised after a few years that this wasn't just me. It wasn't just me that was incompetent. I mean, there was possibly an element of that. Um, but it was just the system in general was quite broken for training teachers. And then after a few years, I realised it wasn't just my institution, but it was kind of fairly national. And that there were pockets of great practice. You know, there were some great teacher trainers out there. I don't want to decry them. But that nationally, it was a disgrace because it just wasn't being taught, managing behaviour. And then the more I broadened my experience and my practice, I discovered that this was internationally true and that it was true throughout the UK and through Scotland and Northern Ireland and, and, and Wales and so on. But also, there's no country that's got this right yet. And I just thought, what an extraordinary deficit to exist that we don't teach teachers how to manage classes so that children's behaviour, you know, works to their advantage, not because we want to oppress them and tell them what to do, but because they need to behave in a certain way if they're going to get the most out of a classroom. No, that's interesting because, I mean, I had a similar experience. Um, funnily mm. enough, I was I was working not in teaching, but I was working in the south of England um, before I went into teaching. And uh, people said, oh, go back to Scotland to do your teacher training. It's better there. Now, whether or not that was the case, that's what I did. Um, I did my teacher training in Scotland. But as you say, had absolutely nothing specific about behaviour management, mm. plenty of theory and all sorts of other quite interesting stuff. Um, but it did strike me laterally because I was a, a probationer mentor for a mm. number of years um, and saying to many probationers, look, before you can even try and implement the theory about these wonderful ways of teaching your subject, whatever it might be, you need to be able to control the class <laughs> so they'll listen to you. Yeah, um, absolutely. And I think one of the biggest problems I've discovered is that um, 
in the teacher training ecosystem, if I can call it that, as I say, I want to reiterate this, there's some brilliant people out there doing, doing the Lord's work on it. Yeah. But what you very frequently find are people who themselves can't manage classrooms teaching people how to manage classrooms. Or people who have never managed a classroom yes. telling people to do it. Or it gets worse. Or have never managed a challenging classroom. Or whose experience of classrooms is entirely theoretical. You know, or they've had the most cursory experience, like, you know, six months in a private school in the, in the primary sector. You know, and it, this is like asking a particle physicist to teach someone how to be a chef. You know, these are different skills of, of understanding human experience. And, and one frequently does not speak to the other. So this this was one of the major dislocations that I'm trying to short circuit in, in my behavioral work by trying to marry up the best of what we know academically, but also with the best of what we know practically. And do you think then that things have improved in in the teacher training institution world from, from when you first went in? Oh, my, my answer, <laughs> see, my answer to this is going to be completely loaded, right? I'll tell you why, because for the past nine years or so, I've been advising the Department for Education in England oh. on behaviour policy. So we've, you know, Touchwood, we've made some big inroads there in terms of um, trying to fix that broken situation I was describing. So teacher training has now been entirely revamped to include a large part of behaviour management. Leadership training has now been uh, revamped to include that. Last year, I rewrote the behaviour guidance for schools, making it absolutely clear of the importance of behaviour management, but also real practical things that people could do, as opposed to ideological and academic waffle. So there have been big inroads made, I think, down, down south. Uh, and I say that as somebody who lives in Scotland, but I, I still work a lot with the Department of Education in England. Um, and I think that some improvements have been made. And I think that teachers internationally are starting to wake up to this because things like social media and so on means that we're having these conversations now that previously we couldn't have. But what I would say, um, particularly for a Scottish audience, is that a lot of the necessary innovations haven't been made yet. And I think that Scottish teachers are, are poorly served by the frameworks that surround them in terms of what they're supposed to do to manage behaviour, the training they get to do it, and the responses they're expected to give. I think that that that, that Scotland, that, I'll put this positively, there's a huge opportunity for Scotland here. Um, <laughs> and it's not because the teachers or the leaders are, are of lesser quality. It's just simply that the teacher training and the institutions and the apparatus surrounding that has not yet woken up particularly well to the new world that we're in, which is the same as the old world, which is to say that children need to be managed, they need to be supported, they need to be loved, but they do need to be managed. Very diplomatic of you, Tom. I must You're say. welcome. Um, it's, I, I mean, it's I can get more incendiary if you like. <laughs> it is instructive when we do, as, as we've done for a number of years now, um, we do a, a newly qualified teacher seminar with, with people who've, who've come out of university, they're coming in to do their first year as probationers, and we run that typically, you know, late July, early August, um, run a, a number of different sessions for them, but always one of those sessions is a behaviour management session. Mm -hmm. And it is remarkable, as you're touching on there, the number of those you know, recently graduated students who say, well, this has been great because it gives me some practical tips, some practical yeah, ideas yeah, that I can yeah. take in the classroom. 
And I've not had that, or I've had very little of that. So, so definitely something there, I think, for there's a, teacher there's, there's a tremendous, sorry, Mike, there's a tremendous difference between the type of advice you tend to get from people who have no skin in the game whatsoever. You know, people who don't send their children to challenging schools, people who themselves never attended a challenging school, people who wouldn't even dream of setting foot in a challenging school. Yeah. And yet they're often the people who are the loudest and most sought after by the media to discuss behavioural matters when it comes to, you know, th things on television. Um, and yet people who do have skin in the game, people who are actually affected by this, people whose children are at schools with challenging behaviour, uh, they need a very, very different package of, of, of advice. They need to know what to do. They don't. What they don't want is to be told, build a relationship. You know, they don't, they, they, to be told, um, uh, you know, do something restorative. They need to be told something really, really practical about what to do next. Yeah, I mean, on on that that notion of theory rather than practice. I mean, have you seen, you know, over the last say ten to fifteen years, significant changes, developments in that theory? Um, and and how how does how does a new yeah. theory about behaviour management actually get grounded, get taken on? It's, it's interesting because when I've been looking into my own past experience and also the experience of other teachers, you find that the, the advice given for people starting behaviour management is usually incredibly vague, maddeningly so. It's usually things like, when you're training to be a teacher, it's usually things like, oh, you'll pick this up as you go along. You know, you'll learn this, this you'll eventually just build a relationship with people. And I used to really struggle with this and one not building relationships with people, I'm perfectly capable, thank you. But, <laughs> but I used to wonder why it wasn't more specific. You know, what do I actually do? When I used to run um, a teacher training online agony uncle column for the Tez, right? I was, a, I was an agony uncle, I'm so proud. Um, people didn't want waffle. They didn't want, you know, inspirational gumph. They wanted to know what to do tomorrow to, you know, to, 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 to get students to behave. And previously, the advice was so vague, and it took me years to realise that the reason why the advice was so vague was because the people giving it didn't know what to do themselves. And they thought that just by simply saying, you know, build relationships with them, that that would somehow give people a structure of what to do in a professional context. What rubbish. That's like, that's like telling a patient, get better. <laughs> you know, okay, I know that, but how shall I do it? But, but, um, but come, come, Tom, all behaviour is communication. All behaviour is communication. <laughs> well, see, this is the thing, right? Behaviour management has been dominated by these dogma, these catechisms, which for so long were, were not even questioned. They were just assumed to be true. And if you dare to question them, then you were some kind of monster that hated children. So, for example, you mentioned one thing there, all behaviour is communication. Well, if all behaviour is communication, then everything is communication, which, which makes it a fairly trivial statement. You know, I mean, the way I'm behaving right now is communicating something, but but it does that matter right now? Is it communicating something important? Are, are teachers supposed to, in the middle of a busy lesson with 30 kids, are teachers supposed to somehow be Sherlock Holmes and, and, and you know, and divine exactly what the student is trying to tell them? Or if a student tells you to F off, what are they trying to tell you? Well, I've got a, I've got a suggestion that maybe they're trying to tell you to F off. <laughs> so, Absolutely. There's different layers and levels to this. And I just, I just find it a very unhelpful piece of advice. Similarly, that advice that people used to give all the time, build a relationship with your class. Ah, very good. How? Yeah. What do you want me to do? Because you can't just walk up to kids and say, you know, I'm a nice person. 
you will have a good relationship with me. I mean, that's a safeguard nightmare that we should expect children to do that. And it's a training nightmare that would expect teachers or staff to do that. You build up a relationship with people by being predictable, by being consistent, by having routines, by having high standards, which you continually enforce and uphold. You know, the, the, those are some of the aspects by which you build a relationship with people by demonstrating that you care for them all the time. But again, that has to be done in specific ways. And if you say to somebody who's brand new to teaching, build a relationship with kids, you may as well just say good luck, you know, because you're not yeah. telling them what to do. And that seems to be the, 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 the basis of it. And one of the things I see, for instance, in the, the, the advice given to Scottish teachers and leaders is things like, you know, to focus on restorative processes. Now, the, the, the one thing about restorative processes is, is that they sound lovely, but they have not been demonstrated to work at scale in any shape or form whatsoever. And that, that the, the, the evidence base we have for restorative processes tends to be very small scale, short term case studies, which are self-reported. And, you know, we asked the teachers at the end, did you like this? And they said, yes, we quite liked it. You know, with groups of 10 children in very boutique circumstances, this isn't, this isn't the kind of credible research we need to use. And yet for some reason, Scottish schools and teachers have been told to adopt this at scale. And that's it, that's the guidance. Use restorative processes. This yeah, is a disaster. No, no wonder things have got worse. Yeah, absolutely. There's no doubt that uh, a number of Scottish local authorities and schools and, and head teachers seem to see restorative practice as the kind of one size fits all. It's, oh, they you know, it's, do. The, mad, you know, it's, it's the silver bullet. Um, but the experience of our members, you know, as I'm sure you're aware, um, is that that can only work in a small number of cases uh, at low level um, mm -hmm. for some kids, but there's loads of kids it doesn't work with. Um, but our, certainly a lot of our members often just feel abandoned then, oh, well, you, you and it gets turned on them, well, you, you've not applied it properly. I know. You, you didn't read, you didn't, and this is true, you didn't read the microscript we provided for yeah, the yeah, start yeah, of conversation, absolutely. which is what, what our members find, you know, particularly galling, I think. Oh, it's, Mike, it's, ab it's absolute madness. And, you know, and I'm, I'm quite happy to, to be blunt about this. The start of justice, the start of processes are useful in a very, very small number of circumstances. And they are useful, they're a tool, but they're, but they're a very, very boutique tool. And the idea that this could be done as a whole school process, the idea that you can use this to displace and replace other methods, like for example, boundaries, consequences, sanctions, that dreaded word that is nonsense. Word. You don't run a school on sanctions, but you include it as part of the package. And if you try to replace that with therapeutic, talky talky processes don't be surprised if most people just most kids at that level just go well this is rubbish you know there's a reason why uh traffic wardens don't hang out hand out restorative tickets you know there's a reason why they don't do that because nobody would give a monkeys if that's what they got you know that you had to write a short witness statement indicating you understand the impact of your actions or something like that but yeah. for, for, for the vast majority of kids talking about what their behavior is very useful but expecting that to be the be-all and end-all of behaviour management is nonsense. And the fact that teachers are expected to do that is a travesty. You're, you've, you've talked quite a bit about this idea of setting boundaries and, and, and letting you know, sure. kids know, you know where they stand and where the lines are, etc. Uh, and that being important. Now, obviously, the, the, the pandemic led to situations where everything was thrown up in the air, not just in schools, but in families at home. 
as well. And certainly a lot of our members uh, are reporting to us that yes, things in terms of behaviour management have got more difficult post-pandemic. That's not to say there were not challenges already, but they have got more difficult. And much of that, and again, a lack of research, we would say, but, uh, but guesswork that, well, boundaries maybe weren't applied in the same way at home, etc. So maybe that's why we've got these, these greater problems now. And your work, are, are, are you getting that kind of feedback that yes, think things are more challenging, um, but any any kind of notion of why that might be? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, undoubtedly and anecdotally, every school I visit is saying they found it tougher since the pandemic for a, for a variety of reasons, both resourcing, staffing, training, um, but a lot of it is to do with children who have become dehabituated from the types of social norms and habits and processes and protocols that help them to flourish in schools. Behaviour is, is frequently learned. Behaviour is frequently habitual. And people can lose those habits. And if you've been stuck at home for two years, don't be surprised if you've lost the habit of, of, you know, of turning up in time and bringing your book and doing your tie a certain way and going to lessons and studying and then going home and doing your homework. You know, we mustn't be surprised, and of course we're not. And the pandemic was 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 a was a was a storm, and it rained on the just and the unjust alike. But it didn't rain equally on people and and kids who came from advantaged socioeconomic circumstances and and God bless them, um, tended to cope better with it because they had more support at home, more parental time, more access to screens and so on. Which doesn't mean they had it easy. But I'm just saying as a cohort. They tended to do not too badly. Um, as a cohort, children from the more socioeconomically deprived circumstances tended to be the worst affected because they already were the furthest behind and they often existed in circumstances which weren't as supportive or, or affluent or, you know, have providing access to screen time or parental time and so on. So we have noticed a big, big difference in the type of... Um, uh, the, 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 the type of decline that schools have seen depending on their cohorts. So if you serve a cohort of children that already come from economically, socioeconomically deprived circumstances, they tended to go back the worst, the most, and more affluent children tend to go back the least. So we shouldn't be surprised by this. I mean, this is something we perhaps could have predicted. And when we did investigations with the DfE down south, that's one of the things we definitely found. So people are finding it harder now. And teachers have been dehabituated. And of course, there's all kinds of other issues going on with, in terms of the economics of the country, in terms of, you know, can people pay their bills and so on, which causes another ripple effect. So there's definitely been an impact behaviourally. Um, and I, I know that you, like us, uh, shared some written evidence with the Scottish Parliament's Education Committee in June mm. when they were uh, beginning to look into to violence and challenging behaviour in schools and we do now have a commitment from the cabinet secretary Jerry Gilruth to have a national summit on relationships and behaviour is what they're calling it um, with the first meeting of that due shortly in September so I mean what would be do you think your key message or messages to those politicians those people in power about what they can do to, to improve things for kids in schools and for the teachers who teach them? Yeah, well, <laughs> I think one of, one of my uh, biggest bugbears, this is this is perhaps trivial, but, but here we go, is that I wouldn't call it Relationships and Behaviour Summit. You know, I would call it a Behaviour Summit. Well, we, because, didn't, we oh, didn't pick the name, but that's I know, what we've been told it's because, called. <laughs> because the, the issues, the problems which have generated this summit are behaviour. Yeah. 
And you can argue that it's something to do with the relationships by all means, but you're rather kind of presuming that that's what you need to be talking about. So there's that. Um, and what I said is, and, I, and I've said this to many politicians, is first of all, you need to change your mindset. You need to stop assuming that all behaviour is the expression of some kind of unmet need, that all misbehaviour is some kind of communication, and that therapeutic processes are the way to resolve this. The idea that we can somehow magically fix every child's difficulty and problem in their lives, and then they'll behave, is is ludicrous. It is activism. It is ideological madness. The idea that we need to fix everything before we fix anything is, is very much, you know, is, is the dark side of activism because it obstructs actual change and progress. Um, so there's that. There's, I mean, when you look at all the advice documentation given to teachers and schools, it's all based on the idea that you need to kind of talk through a child's problems with them in order to resolve their behaviour. That is a helpful process to do as well. But what it doesn't do is emphasise enough the, the role of teaching behaviour, clear boundaries, um, reinforcing those boundaries with love and conversation, sure, but also with sanctions and rewards as needs be, including the presumption that if a child misbehaves badly enough, they can be excluded. And that is not a bad thing. That it's not an it's not an issue of failure. It's an issue of taking a child into an area or an environment where they get the help that they need, i.e., uh, pupil referral unit, a special school, and so on. So, what practically needs to happen is changing that mindset, an update of the behaviour guidance to reflect the practicalities of what happens in schools rather than the ideological presumptions of politicians, um, revise and renew initial teacher training, initial teacher education to to include an enormous amount of teacher uh, training and behaviour management and binning a great deal of the ideological um, bump, which, which, which bedevils it, um, and to review and renew the understanding of how we train head teachers in this area. And of course, then perhaps a national programme of creating um, a network of special schools, behavioural schools, people referral units, alternative provision, which aren't sin bins or borstals, but are places that can save children's lives are places which can turn their lives around. You know, these are, these are, these are springboards for children. These are, these, these are launch pads for children. These are intensive care units. You know, these are not failures. These are, these are not holding pens for, for, for the sinful. You know, this is a necessary intervention that a lot of children need in their lives. And it's also a necessary intervention for the good, the safety, the dignity, and the learning of the vast majority of students who do not misbehave. But this idea that we must never exclude is one of the most da damaging safeguarding problems I've seen in my entire career, and it needs to end there.